Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. Welcome to service here at Grace Community Church downtown. I'm Steve Shepherdly, one of the pastors here at the downtown church. Um, tomorrow is Veterans Day. We just wanted to say, I hope you all have a great holiday tomorrow. And we also wanted to say thank you to any of our uh, current uh, military or uh, veterans. Thank you for your service to the country and just wanted to recognize you today and say thank you. We are in our Story of God series right now where we're going through the Bible and looking at the main narrative, the main story that runs throughout the Bible from Genesis uh, through to Revelation. How many of you have ever read the Bible and felt like, I'm not sure where this overall story is going? Like you feel like you're lost in the weeds? Uh, has anyone read Deuteronomy <laughs> or Numbers? <laughs> uh, sometimes it's confusing. How does this fit together? And so we're trying to look at the overarching story of the Bible over about two months and to be able to trace that together. Uh, sometimes there are in interesting parts of the Bible we don't know what to do with. And sometimes there are interesting parts of the Bible that are just like, that's actually just fascinating. Again, I don't know what to do with it, but it's fascinating. Like I was recently talking with a professor um, who uh, is a religious studies professor, and he pitched to the classics department, hey, why don't we read together through um, the Song of Solomon, like read through the original text with a group of students? And the classics department got back and said, could we pick something that's a little less racy? Like, I think this is too racy for university students. And I was like, the Bible is being censored. It's too racy. Wow, how about that? Uh, to be fair, the original language, like what we have has been, it's been pretty... It's gone through lots of purification, <laughs> the English translation. <laughs> the Puritans had their hands on it for a while. Uh, I'm kidding. That's not who had their hands on it. There are other people who've had their hands on it. But we're looking at the main story of the Bible. So uh, as we've done that, uh, we've looked at creation, that God created the world. God made the world good, and he created us with purpose. He created us to bear his image to be his representatives on earth as God was bringing chaos to order, bringing the world to order and having dominion over the world and then filling it with good things. He now creates humans in his image to continue to bring his goodness into the world, to represent him and to uh, glorify him in the way that they bring goodness into the world. But then we looked in the second sermon that humans have rebelled. Uh, Adam and Eve did not trust God's word. Uh, Eve turned away from God's word, trusted the the word of the serpent, and also sought to craft some kind of lofty identity for herself by trying to be like God, by eating the fruit from the tree. And so when they sinned, it unleashed all this chaos into the world. Pain and suffering were now um, separated from God and were subject to sin and death. Then we looked at God's promise. And the amazing thing is that the promise starts in Genesis 3. As soon as humans sin, the promise starts there. Uh, God turns to the serpent who stirred up all this trouble, as we saw, and he says to the serpent, there will be a, a descendant from the woman, uh, from Eve, who will crush this serpent's head. And then that promise builds. Abraham is given a promise, uh, is told, you will become a great nation, and out of you I will um, uh, bless all the families of the earth. And that promise moves forward in the Old Testament. And we see it uh, in the prophets, where the prophets are told there will be one who will be born of a virgin who will take the sins of the world upon himself. And so that promise continues to grow. But it's clear as the promise is growing and moving forward through the Old Testament that no human is actually going to accomplish the redemption or fulfill the promise because all the humans 
that God is using to move the promise forward can struggle with unfaithfulness themselves. So finally, Brooks preached last week about redemption, that after all these long years of God moving the promise forward, he continues to uh, sustain his people Israel, even though they wander in and out of faithfulness, in and out of adultery. God continues to make them a nation and to move them forward until finally, out of this nation of Israel, Jesus is born. And then on the cross, Jesus accomplishes our redemption. He dies on the cross to save you and to save me by grace, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves out of love for sinners. And so tonight we're going to talk about community. Who are we? Uh, As we talk about that, I want to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Brooks left us in John 19, verse 30. So Jesus is on the cross at this moment. It says, Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus has just purchased redemption for sinful humans here. On the cross, he says, it is finished. The process of redeeming sinful humans is finished. And you might wonder to yourself, okay, then what's next? If Jesus has finished it all, is there anything left to do? In John 20, Jesus actually clarifies this question. He answers this question in John 20, verses 21 through 23. This is Jesus just after he's been raised from the dead. So he's died on the cross, now raised from the dead. He's talking with the disciples, and he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we need to back up just a little bit and understand what's going on in here uh, in context. John 19, the same passage, the same chapter where Jesus is on the cross and says, it is finished. This kind of harkens back to Genesis 1 and 2, where in Genesis 1 and 2, God completes the work of creation, and the text says, God finished the work of creating. So there's a parallel there. But also, God rests in Genesis 1 and 2. He rests on the seventh day after creating after finishing the work of creation, after Jesus says it is finished and he dies, then he is laid to rest in a tomb. I think on the same day of the week. So then when Jesus is raised from the dead in John 20, it's like John is saying, look, Jesus has finished what God started in Genesis 1 and 2, the work of creation. Jesus is kind of buttoning that up. And now Jesus in John 20, raised from the dead, is starting a new week. This is like the new week of new creation. And so when he goes to the disciples and breathes on them, where have we seen God breathing into someone before? Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2, God shapes Adam out of the ground and then breathes into him. And Adam becomes a person through whom God is then wanting to bring his goodness into the world. Adam's tasked with bearing God's image and bringing God's goodness into the world, but now Jesus, the God-man, raised from the dead, is breathing into like a new humanity. The disciples are made to be a new humanity. He's going to breathe the Spirit into them instead of just them uh, bearing God's image by having dominion over the earth and bringing goodness into the earth, being fruitful and multiplying. Now he's saying, your task is to represent me by offering God's forgiveness to the world. Offer my forgiveness. The redemption that Jesus has just accomplished, Jesus says that I've just accomplished, now extend that into the world. 
Don't just bear the image of the creator God, now bear the image of a redeeming God by offering his forgiveness to others. But I don't think the disciples quite get it. In the rest of John, John 20 and 21, we don't see the disciples going out and saying, hey, let me tell you about forgiveness that's available through Jesus. That doesn't seem to be anything spelled out in those chapters. In fact, if you go to Acts 1, this is again after Jesus had been raised from the dead, the disciples ask Jesus a question. They're essentially asking Jesus, what is next? So when they came together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, if you said everything is finished on the cross, what's keeping you from restoring the kingdom to Israel? What's keeping you from ushering in the end of all things and bringing history to the end that God has for it? If it's all finished, what's next? The end where we just get to where God wants us to be for eternity? Are you going to usher in the kingdom and restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer In the very next verses, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is saying in the story of God, in the unfolding story of what God is doing in the world, Jesus has accomplished redemption. And in the meantime now, we are being tasked, the disciples are being tasked, the church is being tasked with being Jesus' witnesses throughout the world, empowered by the Spirit to take testimony about Jesus into the world, to share the gospel with those who've not heard it. So Jesus tells the disciples, hey, hang around in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. So the disciples stay in Jerusalem, and finally the Spirit is actually given. Shortly, in a very short amount of time, the Spirit comes. This is in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. And as the Spirit comes, we see that the disciples are empowered for witnessing, but this creates a new kind of community. So Acts 2, verses 1 through 4 When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit will come. They wait in Jerusalem and the Spirit comes. And it's evident because they're speaking in tongues and they've got these tongues of fire upon their heads. But let's look at what follows after the Spirit is given. In verses 5 through 8 of Acts 2, it says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues. And in Jerusalem, you've got people who are Parthians and Medes, and there are people from uh, Asia and people from Rome all over the globe who are there for Pentecost. And they're hearing these Galileans speak in tongues, but they hear the tongues is in their own language. 
and they're bewildered and wondering what's going on. My parents, uh, at least my dad's side of the family, was deeply Lutheran. They traced their roots back to the 1500s to this Lutheran minister. You can't trace Lutheran roots any further back because there's no Lutheranism before then. And so there are these deep, deep German Lutheran roots that we have. And about the time I hit third grade, my parents made a major transition into a Pentecostal church. And I remember the first time I heard somebody speak in tongues at a Pentecostal church, uh, I always trusted my parents. They were very trustworthy people. But I heard someone speaking in tongues, and I was like, Mom and Dad, where have you brought us? And I remember looking up at my dad like, this is really strange. Can I trust you, Dad? <laughs> like, where have you brought me? But I remember so many really amazing experiences we had in the Pentecostal church growing in the Lord, and I'm thankful for that. But that first experience of hearing somebody speaking in other tongues, I was astonished. And so you've got these folks in um, Acts who are clearly astonished. What's going on? We hear people speaking in our own language, but they're not like us. They're from Galilee. So before moving on, I want to ask this question. Where else in the story of God, where else in the whole story of God in the Bible have we seen uh, people speaking different languages at the same time? Yell it out. Babel, exactly. We've seen this before. So I want to come back to that in just a minute. So the crowd is absolutely riveted. They're mesmerized by this. And some of them even say, are these people drunk? Are these people drunk? I love Peter's answer to that. He says, uh, these people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting answer. <laughs> that implies if you'd come back like three or four hours later, maybe they would have been drunk. I don't think that would have been the case for this group of believers. I don't think that uh, struggling with drunkenness was an issue that they dealt with. So what happens is as the crowd is mesmerized and perplexed, Peter now stands up filled with the Holy Spirit, freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Peter who had denied Jesus three times is now filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches a message directly about Jesus to a massive crowd, including likely some people who had been involved in crucifying Jesus. This is a major change for Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's able to preach about Jesus. And as he preaches this message saying, this Jesus that you have crucified was both Lord and Christ. Not only is Peter filled with the Spirit to be able to preach this message about Jesus, the Spirit has also come. And I think the Spirit is convicting the crowd. When they hear Peter's message, they're convicted. Jesus said when he would send the Spirit, that the Spirit would convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. And here you've got 3,000 people that feel convicted of their sin. They're like, we didn't accept Jesus. We rejected him. And they say to Peter, what can we do? What must we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus that day. Talk about a good day at church, right? An amazing day. But then this tightly knit community emerges as a result. Let's look at this community. Acts 2, 42 through 47, what Bechara read for us. says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad 
and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's look at some hallmarks of this new community. First of all, they're committed to the gospel. How do we know that? Because in verse 42 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was all about Christ Jesus, all about the gospel. So they're focused upon the truth of the gospel. But they're also people in deep, deep community. Their faith in Jesus, their belief in the gospel, also formed them into a family. They're people who are breaking bread together. They're praying together. They're worshiping together. They're selling their possessions and giving to those who have need. There's intense, intense community going on here. And they're also committed to to mission as day by day the Lord was adding more to their number. This is a major moment in the story of God. Clearly when Jesus dies on the cross, this is the centerpiece of the story of God. But Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, says, I will send my spirit. And this is also a significant moment in the story of God when Jesus ascends into heaven but then sends the spirit to empower his church for witness. And it creates this new community, this very powerful community. So I want to talk about why this community matters in the story of God. It's a reversal of what happens uh, at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, you've got people coming together. They're united, but kind of united in rebellion to God, which is a strange idea. So they're united in rebellion to God, and it's not going to go well. In fact, Genesis 11 is the fruit of what we see, this long kind of um, buildup of people sinning and their sin causing problem in communities and in relationship. And it goes from bad to worse to worse. And then we hit Genesis 11. So let's, like Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. God shows up in the garden to talk with them. And Adam says, did, God says to Adam, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? And what does Adam say? It's almost like when he becomes a, a, you know, a kid blaming his sister more than a, a man loving his wife. <laughs> He blames his wife. She tempted me. She gave me the fruit. And this is not a picture of relational intimacy. Anytime you blame somebody, this is not a picture of relational intimacy. So there's a crack in their relationship. But then you go to their children, Cain and Abel. Both make sacrifices to the Lord. Abel's offering is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. Cain's offering is not. And when Cain recognizes this, he gets jealous. And what's he do? He kills his brother. Talk about going from bad to worse. If Adam and Eve are struggling with relational intimacy as Adam blames his wife, then their children kill each other. So this is like a terrible spiral downward in terms of community. You've got uh, Lamech who kills a couple of guys and brags about it as Jason mentions. That I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Then you've got violence growing in the world leading up to the flood. And then finally you hit Genesis 11 where it says all humanity was like coming together. And at first this sounds good. Okay, like humanity's coming together, they're uniting. Instead of there being all this conflict that's been growing from Genesis 3 onward, maybe humanity's going to pull it together and unite and do something good. But the problem is they're united in making a name for themselves. They want to exalt themselves. They want to make much of their own name. And anytime humans want to... uh, 
exalt themselves, make much of themselves. Like they want to build a tower to the sky to be like, well, we're like the gods in the heavens to exalt themselves. Things usually don't go well. When humans, when we exalt ourselves, we usually become arrogant and proud. And whatever power we might have, often use that to oppress and hurt other people or walk on other people. So here at the Tower of Babel, there are warning signs saying, look, this is sinful humanity. They look like they're coming together, but this is not for godly purposes. And there are warning signs. If they continue, there's probably some oppression that's coming soon. So God comes down and he confuses their language so they can no longer work together. And then he sends them out. He sends them out. But what we see in Acts 2 is the absolute reversal of this. If at Babel people are in rebellion to God, in Acts 2, this message is preached by Peter and people place their faith in Jesus and are forgiven and are made right with God. At Acts 2, you've got people speaking in all kinds of different languages, but instead of it being confusion and driving people apart, there's understanding and people come together. And ultimately, it leads to this very tight-knit community. When the history of sin has driven humans apart, Jesus' death on the cross provides an opportunity for forgiveness, but when the Spirit comes, then the Spirit works in us to bind us together in unity, where sin and the long shadow of Babel throughout history has pushed relationships apart. We're divided, we're in conflict. When the Spirit comes and people believe in Jesus, it binds us together and heals old wounds. This is an amazing picture of God's work in the story of God. Now, he's bringing people together. He's healing wounds from the fall, from human sin. This is a powerful picture of God's work in the world. And so this is also a community who is on mission. This is a community who's on mission. Again, in verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So clearly lots of people are being saved, not just the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. That would be amazing in and of itself. But it says after that, day by day, even more people are placing their faith in Jesus. And part of that's because throughout Acts, in this story of God, you see the apostles continue to share the gospel. We'll see Peter. We'll see John. We'll see the Apostle Paul continue to preach sermons. We'll see the Apostle Paul sent out on missionary efforts as he goes to places like Corinth and he goes to uh, Thessalonica and other places. Paul is on mission sharing the gospel and other apostles are doing the same. And fellow believers, just ordinary believers are sharing the gospel with people they work with. And so clearly the gospel is being shared verbally. So Jesus leaves behind a community who can share the gospel with other people. And we want to talk in a couple of weeks here at service about how we can be empowered to share the gospel with other people. So that's an important thing that was happening. But there's another way that they're witnessing about Jesus in this community. Their love and their unity gave witness to Jesus. This tight-knit community where they're sharing their goods with one another. They're fellowshipping with one another. This says something about Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us that this would happen. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, meaning your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When the disciples loved one another here in Acts 2, it said something about the power of Jesus. It pointed to Jesus. John says something similar in 
John 17, we see Jesus saying something similar. This is in the uh, upper room or at the Last Supper uh, before Jesus is arrested and crucified. And he's praying to the Father for the disciples. Could you imagine that? Like, just a side note, having Jesus pray for you, oh my word. I couldn't imagine having Jesus like sit down and utter a prayer uh, over me in person like this. But Jesus is praying over the disciples. And he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is an amazing thing. Jesus prays, God, would you cause the disciples to be one, to experience unity together with each other? Because if they experience unity, just as, Father, you and I are one, the world will believe that you have sent me. The world will know that you have sent me. Jesus is saying, in this prayer, when Christians are united with one another, it gives witness and testimony to the truth of who Jesus was. I don't know about you, but I think about that and I kind of gulp and say, wow, that's a tall order. (laughs) But that's what Jesus prays for. Our love for one another should say something about Jesus. It should bear and reflect something about the nature of Jesus as the Redeemer. And our unity should do the same. So clearly, when Jesus dies on the cross, he's dying to give us eternal life. Out of love for sinners like you and like me, he wants to give us eternal life. And praise God for that, right? Like every morning we should wake up and be thankful to God that by grace he has saved us for eternal life. And his mercies are new every morning. But as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works or deeds, so that no one may boast. But then Paul also says that we have good works that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we've been saved by grace for eternity, but we've also been saved by grace for good works. And a lot of these good works have to do with how we live together with one another as Christians. Paul goes on in Ephesians to talk about this. He says, speak the truth and love to one another. Don't steal anymore. Instead, of wor- instead work so that you have something to share with other people in, in the body. Be kind to one another. Don't let anger and malice and rage and slander, this kind of stuff, ra- stuff reign among you. Instead, be kind-hearted, be gentle, be patient with one another. Live in unity with one another. Jesus has called us to live in unity with one another and to love one another. Now, this kind of community is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. How many of you would say either here at Grace or some other uh, context of church or uh, in some other ministry, you've experienced this kind of community, you would say, this has been a deep blessing to me. (laughs) It's amazing what God can do in our lives in community and how God blesses us when we're able to enjoy the gift of community. I can think of moments in my own life when I've grown in Christ, and it's not because some preacher has prattled on at me, like I'm doing to you now. I'm trying to be quick here (laughs) because I love you all. (laughs) But there are so many moments when just in the ordinary course of community with somebody at church, they say something that encourages me at just the right moment. They provide for my need at just the right moment. They know me well enough to speak the truth to me that I need to hear and challenge me when I need to be challenged. They know when I'm really down and discouraged and feel like giving up and they can encourage me in Christ Jesus. They can remind me of God's grace, God's sufficiency and the sufficiency of his grace for me. 
What I love is seeing how you all are a gift to one another in community. So many times I see and hear about folks who are having a hard time or some kind of difficulty is hit. And Jason and I will ask, how can we serve you? How can we help you? And you all are like, you know what? My community group is already, already doing a ton. Like somebody's sick and like, my community group is bringing me meals. Or man, I'm having a hard time at work or having a job transition, things hard financially. Do you need some help? No, folks at community group are helping me out. You all are a blessing to one another, and I just want to thank God for how you minister to one another, and I can see the gift that you all are to one another, and I just want to say continue in community. Continue in community, enjoying the gifts that you all are to one another and being a gift to one another. But I also want to say this kind of community is a calling and a responsibility for us. It's a calling and a responsibility. We're not just called to enjoy this community. God has designed it for us to enjoy and to embrace. But it's also something that we need to live up to and grow into in order to pursue the calling that God has given us. So uh, unity is something that takes time to cultivate. In the story of God, if you follow not only Jesus dying on the cross and then rising from the dead and then the spirit is given and then you go to Acts 2 and it seems like this really beautiful moment in church history, right? In the story of God, this seems like the most glorious and grand moment that everybody seems to reference, which is part of the reason we've talked about it tonight. Look at the community they had. Look at their unity. Look at their love for one another. We always go to Acts 2 and we should because there's something powerful there. But as you go forward in the story of God, there's trouble of ruin, folks, Right? Who's read Acts 15, where people start having some questions? Uh, All of these non-Jewish people are, are coming into the body. They're placing their faith in Jesus. And there's this major question. Jesus was Jewish. Peter was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. John and Matthew, they're all Jewish. Don't these... These Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, as they're placing their faith in Jesus, do they have to pass through Judaism first? Don't they have to become Jews first? Don't they have to get circumcised in order to be Christians? And so at Acts 15, they have to argue this out. And all the Gentile grown males who were present there in Acts 15 said, our vote is no. It's a hard no, hard no. We're voting no on circumcision, Right? But they had to argue it through. Now they arrived at unity, but it took time. What we see in the early church in the story of God is God brings unity at Acts 2, but it's constantly contested and challenged. And the disciples and the church has to work through it. Unity is not just when everything is smooth sailing. Unity actually emerges when we rub each other the wrong way and have to work through it. That is real, spirit-led, God-empowered unity. When you're in a community group, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your relationships, when things get bumpy, don't think that that's the end. Don't think that unity is done. What it means is now we have an opportunity to work through this together, to work past it, to be patient with one another, to listen to one another, to understand one another, and make sure we come through on the other side in unity. That's what unity looks like. We see that in the early church. In the Corinthian, uh, Corinthian context, continuing on in the story of God, you've got Corinthians who uh, Paul preached to them, and they're like, Paul, we love you. You're great. Thank you for all the work you did here. After a little while, they're like, what about these other apostles? They seem pretty flashy and showy. 
We like them. And we'll start to trust what they're saying, even if what they're saying is wrong. Again, this is not unity. This is trouble. And Paul has to go to them and work this out. Unity is something we have to cultivate and we have to nurture, and it takes effort. The same is true of love. In the story of God, as you look at the life of the church, after Acts 2, yes, they're loving each other richly. They're sharing their goods. But if we look again, like in, uh, in the Corinthian church, you've got wealthy people at a communion meal who are gorging on food, and people who are poor who have nothing. And Paul has to write them in eloquent Greek and say, hey, you all, you got to knock this off. Like, that is not loving. This is not what love looks like, and he has to challenge them. And so for you, if you're sitting here and thinking like, if community uh, and living in love and unity means like living pretty like perfect lives that shine a light on Jesus, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we see in the story of God. What we see in the story of God is as we are in community and continuing to be sanctified and growing in Christ together, there's going to be trouble. Your community group, it, it already has run into trouble. You all know that. I know that. Our marriages run into trouble. You all know that. I know that. Our friendships run into trouble. The question is, how do we grow in Christ together and grow through those moments? How do we know what Jesus taught us? How do we know what the apostles taught us? And how do we keep in step with the Spirit to actually work through those things together and continue to arrive at unity and to grow in love. In fact, what happens in a lot of these contexts is we actually wrong one another. I wrong other people. And that's problematic. That's a thing I have to work through. But even as we go to one another and say, you know what, I hurt you. I wronged you. Would you please forgive me? That moment of even asking for forgiveness is a way to shine light on Jesus. That's what it means to pursue unity and love together. It doesn't mean being perfect. It means seeing our fallenness actually emerge to the surface. It bubbles to the surface and reveals itself, and then we work on it together in grace and through the power of the Spirit. And it's that kind of a community that shines a light on Jesus and that speaks of his grace so that when we speak the gospel, when we verbally proclaim the gospel, it's coming out of this rich and fertile soil of a community that actually loves one another and experiences unity. Unfortunately, in the history of Christianity, there have been far too many times over the last 2,000 years where the church has proclaimed the gospel, but the church has not been loving one another. And it's because of that, people outside the church have struggled to believe the gospel. People have struggled to trust the gospel. It's not that the church was preaching the wrong things. It's that the church was not loving one another and it undermined the preaching of the gospel. So may God help us to continue to grow in loving community. I just want to say I'm grateful for this church downtown. I'm grateful for how many of you folks are in community with one another and loving each other, not perfectly, but as we rub each other the wrong way, as we um, wound one another, we ask for forgiveness, we confess it, we extend grace to one another, and we experience unity. And may God cause that to grow more and more. And for those of you who aren't in community, I would invite you to be in community. And as we close, I want to talk about what this kind of community requires. First of all, it requires that we are in community. So uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, we are told to bear with one another, to be patient with one another, to be kind 
to one another, to honor one another. What is required in every single one of these contexts? You have to have another. <laughs> so in order to be living this out, we have to be in community with other believers. And so we'd like to invite if you, if you're not in community, to jump in. Uh, we have community groups downtown that meet throughout Iowa City, both west and east side. Uh, and so we'd invite you to get connected. You could talk with Pastor Jason after service. You can talk with me. Love to help you get connected with a group. Uh, you're welcome to uh, fill out a card we have at the back and drop it into uh, the box that's at the info table if you'd prefer that way. But we'd love to help you get connected to a community group and be in community with other believers. For those of you who are already in community, I just want to say continue to lean in. Praise God for all that you're doing and continue to lean into community. Another thing that this kind of community requires is that we continue to be grounded in the gospel. That daily we're soaking in God's grace for us and that we're able to offer that grace to one another. That daily we're remembering God's mercy for us in Christ Jesus and that we're quick to offer that to one another. When we confess our sins, when we confess our shortcomings, we point one another right back to the foot of the cross and say there's mercy today. His mercies are new today. And now let's figure out how we can encourage each other to continue to grow in Christ. And then finally, we need the fruit of the Spirit to be developing among us. If we're going to enjoy this kind of community, this kind of unity, and if we're also going to display this kind of community and unity, we need desperately the fruit of the Spirit working among us. Paul says in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but have you ever been around somebody who's impatient and thought to yourself, this is not making for good community? <laughs> I know in moments when I'm impatient, it does not help my family. It does not make for good community. But patience makes for good community. Gentleness makes for good community. Self-control, especially in regards to the mouth and the things we say, makes for good community. Man, when our mouths are so quick to, to say something sharp or barbed, we have that thing right on our tongue we want to say to somebody, I was right, you were wrong, you always fill in the blank. Man, we can hurt community, we can hurt people around us. But if our tongues are controlled to not say those kinds of things, it can nurture community. In fact, if our tongues are controlled to say uplifting things, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we should, we should be filled with things of grace that build one another up. Those are the kinds of things we should be saying to one another when the fruit of the Spirit is present, it causes us to experience this kind of community. I just want to say here at Grace Community Church, your elders... Um, across both campuses are in a season where we just really feel like God is working uh, among us as a community. Uh, we've had a lot of years where we've been working together as elders and there's a lot of business we have to go about and meetings and we pray at those meetings but we find ourselves in a season where we just feel like God is urging us to deeper, deeper prayer and deeper community as elders to be caring for one another because we're also seeing certain ways in which God has been revealing to us ways that we, like shortcomings that we didn't even see or recognize. God is revealing blind spots that we've had, areas of sin here or areas of sin there that we didn't even recognize. And it's been painful, but as God is using others to reveal those things to us, we've been leaning in in lots of prayer, lots of confession with each other, and the Lord, it feels just like the Lord is working a lot of the fruit of the Spirit among us. 
And we just want to pray that the Lord continues that, especially as we as a church have a lot going on across both campuses. You all, if you've been here for the last couple of months, we've had this momentum initiative that we've talked about. It's a two-year discipleship initiative, and there's a lot of moving parts there. Uh, we also have a, a major building effort that we've got going on in North Liberty, and that's going to involve a lot of money. Downtown here, we're not sure what our building situation is going to be in the next couple of years. We're working on that. So we've got all of these things to worry about. At, at like an institutional or building level, all these meetings. But if we're not a people who are filled with the Spirit of God, who are walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, and have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it doesn't matter what kind of building we get into. We could be in the best building that Iowa City or North Liberty has to offer, but if we are not a body who is walking in the Spirit, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, Loving one another in this kind of unity, it really doesn't matter what kind of building we have. So may the Lord continue to help all of us grow in the fruit of the Spirit, in love, in unity, and ultimately that people would see that. And people would witness this love and would be drawn to Jesus, not because we're great, but because in our weakness, God is moving by the power of his Spirit to shine a light on Jesus Lord, we just want to thank you for the story of God. I want to thank you tonight that you have made a place and a space for us in your story and in your work. That though we are sinners who have wandered far from you, you've sent your son Jesus to redeem us and to give everlasting life. We also thank you, Lord God, that you give us the joy and the gift of community with one another. We just want to ask, Lord God, that you would help us to continue to grow in community with one another. I ask that you would help me to grow in community with my family, my wife and my children help me to grow in community with my fellow elders here downtown. And I pray that you would help this congregation help all of us to grow in unity with one another. Lord, if there are ways that I have offended anyone in this body and I'm not aware of it, I pray that you would reveal that and help me to pursue unity with brothers and sisters in this body. Lord, I pray for anyone here who knows that they may be offended others, that you would give them the courage to make that right with others, even today, to go to them and confess and say, I'm sorry for wounding you. I'm sorry for offending you. Would you please forgive me? Lord, for those who need to extend forgiveness, I pray that you would help us to be quick to extend forgiveness to one another. And as we do that, Lord God, I pray that we would taste the sweetness and the goodness of your kingdom coming among us. I pray that your spirit would work in us to, to see the fruit of the spirit just flourishing among us. And that we pray as well, as that happens, Lord God, that we would be a community that can share the gospel powerfully with others. And we pray that people who don't know you in Iowa City, here at the university, and in the surrounding areas would come to know you as a result of this, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.